0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include.
1: Mysterious Monsters. Templar Treasure in Iceland. Cthulhuing Up Your Hometown.
0: And William Blake. It has come to
1: pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores
0: now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world.
1: The new edition has a completely new character creation system.
0: Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition
1: also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world.
0: And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong.
1: Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, play for players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone.
0: Buy them individually. Or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read
1: more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies.
0: Or leave immediately for your local game store.
1: Because Unknown Armies is there right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton. Coming alive, welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut, but look at those miniatures. Those miniatures are terrifying miniatures. They are bigger and clumpier than the other miniatures. Also, (laughs) the Dritos may be haunted, but that's for a different topic. Peter Frampton definitely has fangs. We are in a monstrous Halloween-style version of the Gaming Hut, because we're talking about making monsters, but not just how to make monsters that are scary, but... How to make monsters, Robin, that make mysteries. Uh, besides making a bunch of monsters that are butlers in country houses, right? how do we do that?
0: Right. Uh, and I guess the distinction here is uh, between fighty monsters, the monsters that you just meet them and hit them, and the monsters that make for good horror mysteries. Uh, and this has been my project while working on the Yellow King role-playing game, because I'm creating a bunch of uh, new creatures for each of the four settings for that, and the thing that I always have to keep in mind while creating them is that these are, in some cases, you know, there's a certain number of fighting monsters, like in the wars section, you might just be walking from one... It's always supposed to be dangerous to go from one area of the battle zone to another, and and, uh, because it's a supernatural war, you might run into uh, some hideous creature or another, and and it's the equivalent of a a landmine or artillery barrage, or in F-20 terms, a wandering monster. But Uh, generally Yellow King uh, like uh, all the other gumshoe games is an investigative game so how do you create creatures that create a mystery that you need to investigate and so one of the properties that they uh, have is often they would be uh, intelligent or sapient. They have something that they are trying to do and by trying to do something they are creating a uh, a mystery. Now, that's not necessarily the case that every single gumshoe uh, horror mystery has an intelligent creature going around doing things. You, The other alternative is that you can have a, a person who's directing the actions of that creature or just has a creature, you know, hanging out in the basement uh, waiting to eat you if you go down and look for the clues there. But that's a topic for another day. So, number one quality is uh, they are kind of human-like. And the next quality is that uh, often you want to go that one step further and say that they can actually pose as people and uh, are uh, cognizant enough to act in society and do things. And that uh, allows them to create the sort of backstory, essentially a series of crimes committed by a monstrous figure, which the characters uh, then have to investigate. And so your model for that is uh, look at how monsters are in the X-Files, that it's rarely a case where Mulder and Scully just run into something horrible and then have to shoot it. There's often someone who kind of looks human, but is a fluke man or uh, squidges down through the uh, drain pipes or, or what have you. Uh, Ken, what are the other, uh, some of the other ingredients of a, uh, a creature that will do things that are worth investigating and that leave a mystery in its tracks?
1: I mean, the other uh, possibility besides what you say, a sapient monster with a intelligible goal or a monster that can, as you say, appear human and give you the great uh, find the werewolf uh, moment, it, which is great in role playing, less so in social gaming, um, is a monster that is doing something mysterious because it is literally alien and there is no way to suss out. What its goals are except by, you know, sort of very broad uh, deduction from these uh, general principles, or I guess induction from, from its actions to figure out what its general principles are. And you need to then sort of create something that has enough different kinds of spur that they can figure out, A, maybe how to defeat it. Oh, let's see, it seems to be um uh, acting like radiation on these uh, innocent victims, so we should probably wear lead shielding when we go in to fight it. And B, that the activity leads the player characters, leads the investigators, to the monster's lair in a useful fashion. So it's like, well, all the reports begin with a ghost being seen at the well. Maybe the well is where the monster is. And so that gives you a mystery that is out of a non or if it's sapient, it's sapient on some other plane. uh, But a, a monster that whose literal monstrosity is the thing that you're discovering. And so the monster itself is the mystery, not even the monster's actions.
0: Right. Or the location of the monster. Right. So that's another. uh So we've got, uh what is the monster doing? Uh, why is the monster doing it? Where is the monster? Another one is who is the monster. Uh,
1: that was one who is the monster. Skipped
0: over. Uh, and another one is how do you kill the monster? Right. So uh, if you find uh, you know a, a chitinith sheath uh, stuck to the uh, pine tree in the woods where the uh, young uh, good-looking campers were uh, killed in the uh, pre-credit sequence, uh, then you, oh well, uh, let's look up in in the book and find out uh, uh, what sort of uh, creature this could be. Oh well, it's a it's a beetle demon. Okay. Well, the next thing we got to do is find out how do you kill a beetle demon and. Uh, in an efficiently, uh, structured, uh, show where they don't spend a lot of time on the mysteries, like, uh, or in terms, well, efficient in the way that they, amount of time they spend on the mysteries, say so supernatural, they don't then usually have to go to another place to find out how you kill a beetle demon. It's in the book. Right. And then, uh, half the time turns out it's not a beetle demon with somebody else and their weapon that they had against it is is useless, but the principle remains the same. And here uh, in a gumshoe game, you might, uh, the clue that tells you it's a beetle demon might be in one place. And then you then have to go to someone else to find out uh, exactly, you know, Oh, well uh, hydrochloric acid, that's what you use against a beetle demon. And so uh, in uh, the Esoteric, that's known as finding the creatures SMD, the special means of dispatch, uh, which of course is uh deeply ingrained in uh creature lore. So you might also think of a uh you know a more rampagey type of uh creature that is not intelligent. That's the mystery is uh what is it and how do you kill it.
1: And that's um if you look at, for example, going all the way back to the OG monster hunting show, Kolchak the Night Stalker, that was what a lot of it was, was there was just a bunch of murders and Kolchak would figure out from, you know, whatever, uh, talking to people or, or finding weird, uh, spoor at the scene or hearing strange eyewitness reports that it's some kind of monster. And then he'd figure out what kind of monster it was. And then he'd just either have his source, you know, the, the local wise man or wise woman would tell him, or he would look it up in a book and figure out how to fight it. And then the fact that he's just Darren McGavin in, in tennis shoes as opposed to, like, guys with guns and badges, is adds the tension there. So, in, uh, say, a Fear Itself game, you can discover that the monster, you know, has a SMD, has a bane, as we say in Knights Black Agents, in the rules text, it's not play text. Um, but if you still have to stab this monster with a arrowhead carved by an Arapaho shaman, and you're a camper, that's still terrifying and hard and you need to sort of you know steal yourself up it doesn't become the now it's just a tactical game and that's what adds the horror part is that the investigator should be outnumbered outgunned, out weirded out somethinged because otherwise it just becomes like a bug hunted or a wolf hunt even
0: right and you uh, mentioned another thing that can be a path of investigation in a game which is what if the thing that you use to kill the creature is rare you know a period arapaho uh Uh, arrowhead, you know, can't be a current one, has to be from the 19th century. Uh, And so that gives you another interaction that you have to go through to actually get the difficult to find thing. Um, And so uh, another question, you can sort of work backwards from how, you know, what what is the the beginning point of the mystery? The X-Files and and, uh, Kolchak and Supernatural uh, very often start with the mystery is someone has been killed. And, you know, that works for uh, lots and lots of uh, different sessions, but you might want to throw a new thing in. And so, for example, the uh, adventure that I'm currently running uh, for my uh, Yellow King group in the aftermath sequence, the beginning of that is uh, someone comes to them and says, well, I found, I was looking at this lot that I own that I was going to sell, and uh, I dug, uh, I was digging a bit, and I found uh, skeletonized remains, and I want you to find out who's the dead body in in my uh, uh, property. And then uh, later on in the uh, course of the session, they find they do a dental record check and they find out it's the skeleton that matches the person who dug up the skeleton. So what's going on there? And it's going to turn out that this is a uh, sort of a manufactured creature, manufactured by the uh, now overthrown uh, Castain regime, and then that creature has certain abilities and so uh, when i wrote up that being in the rule book implicit in the description is a mystery of who is this person uh, or who is this creature but also that enabled me to build in something as a as a hook other than just a murder so you might want to uh, start uh, similarly thinking of similar non-murder situations that are worth uh, investigating so you know, if the premise of your uh, game is that your mystery solvers who occasionally fight monsters are uh, kind of mercenaries who who are in it for a buck while they're hired by a bank because all of a sudden a bunch of diamonds have disappeared from their uh, from their vaults. And, well, I guess that means this is about a creature that eats diamonds. And so from that starting point, you can start to ask yourself, okay, what creature eats diamonds and is capable of entering a bank in order to do that and so you uh, come up with their physical properties it's probably insubst- able to go insubstantial so that uh, bank vaults are no uh, problem for it and then you would then go from there to create the mythology on top of that to explain you know why uh this entity existed And then uh, from there, uh, since it can turn in substantial, you might then also add in that special means of dispatch thing. How do you make it substantial long enough to then be able to kill it with uh, conventional weapons? So that can be your your starting point is what's a non-murder investigation that a creature can be responsible for?
1: Now, especially with a one-shot monster, one that you don't intend to have an ecology for, like an F-20, or actually plenty of F20 monsters are one shot. It may not be quote unquote realistic, but I think it's more fun for the investigators, for players. And I think it's more fun for the GM, for the designer to try and make as much of the things about the monster fit some pattern or rhyme with some sort of theme. So when you have a vanishing diamonds, a monster can go into a bank vault. What I'm thinking is diamonds. The other thing that diamonds are is that they refract light, right? They're little prisms. And so the monster is made out of refracted light and that's how it can go into a bank vault. It just sort of goes in between the little, you know, it goes sort of two dimensional. It's like a photon passing through the, through the lock or through the, um, uh, even through the, uh, edge of the door, through the hinges. And so. Anywhere light can go, this thing can go. And if it, you know, they open the vault to do business, it, it floods in and it just stays in a reflection inside the vault, a reflective surface. And then it comes out. It doesn't even necessarily pass through the sealed vault, but it can hide. It's invisible. It can, you know, be made out of refracted light. And so the diamonds are something it needs for further refractivity or because the diamonds are actually the eggs that it laid, you know, a a, a millennia ago, and now it's come back to, to hatch them out. And if the players don't find the diamonds and prevent them from hatching, that we're going to be full of refractive light monsters and baby refractive light, light monsters. Like I need to tell you, they need corneas. They do need corneas. (laughs) Yes. And so um uh you can have sort of people being struck with hysterical blindness, which is different from, from from murder, and then when the doctor examines it's like it's weird, your your cornea is now opaque. It doesn't reflect anything. It's got a positive albedo or, or, or a zero albedo, it's it's absorbing light. And so that creates this sort of you know, weirdness that can also be a hook for a monster. Because like you say, murder, 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 even if the method by which the thing is murdered, it ate its clatter of dice spleen, it ate its clatter of dice, renal system, it ate its clatter of dice, vertebrae, you know, whatever, that gets old, but other things can go wrong with witnesses or side effects, people who stumble on it. I mean, the, uh, the color out of space, uh, the classical, what the hell is it? Um, just sort of leeches the vitality out of the people. It drives them mad. It gives them visions. It does a lot of things before they actually just topple over and crumble to dust out of radiation sickness. There's all kinds of stuff going on with the color, and you can have a similar sort of s- suite of effects. That all because you think, what do corneas and diamonds and that uh, face in the mirror having? Oh, they're all reflective. They all deal with light. This is a light thing, and that gives you a sense that the players can put it together even if they can't like dust for light monster, but they could maybe figure it out because it's a thematic commonality as opposed to, there's no way to say, oh, this ghost likes diamonds, right? I mean, that's, you'd have to go back and find out the bank was built on the house of an old rich miser who kept diamonds uh forever. And then you're like, okay, now I get it. The ghost of this miser has come back and he's taking the diamonds. And so again, that's building a human story because human monsters, like we talked about at the beginning of the segment can have any set of motivations that humans might have. And humans do all kinds of crazy things. You have only to open your door and discover that humans are doing baffling nonsense without even any supernatural monstrosity
0: involved. Right. And another thing that you pointed to uh, with both versions of the diamond stealing monster um, are that it has a thing that it uh, does not just once, but multiple times. Uh, And of course, Murdering people and eating their spleens is is another uh, thing that the creature can continue to do because if you have the creature just doing its thing once and then it goes out and, you know, goes back to its uh, lair to watch Netflix, uh, that gives you less of an opportunity to uh, intervene as the GM and ratchet the stakes up. <laughs> but if there are multiple bank vaults or multiple people with spleens, uh, it can continue to, to hit them. Uh, as you go along and therefore both, uh, you know, in the uh, time-honored fashion of an X-Files plot, then drop more information. Right. Um, or uh, just drop more sense of threat and uh, menace and a sense of stakes. That is also uh, a... A really useful thing to build into a mystery creature. So, I, I,
1: I like the notion that we're just all hoping it's like a middle-aged monster because it like goes out once. It's like, oh, this isn't as much fun as when <laughs> I was a kid. It just goes back yeah. and watches Netflix. It orders in Spleen. It's fine. It's like, uh, we go on Spleen Hub and just order some. I'm so tired of this.
0: <laughs> yes. I, and you have the recurring uh, trope of the creature that, you know, comes out and strikes once every X year. Right, right. yeah. So that you can go back and, oh, well, look, in the ni- 1923 there was a mysterious... Rash of despleanings, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and it's come again. And so we know we've got to. And stop it before it gets all seven spleens and disappears again, or our or, uh, descendants will have to be uh, worrying about this in the future. We are actually now going to
1: get a, a cease and desist from Chris Carter because we are so uh, honoring uh, the liver-eating monster
0: tombs. <laughs> before we serve legal papers, perhaps it's time to uh, uh, check in on an exciting commercial message and then see whatever exciting, crazy segment might be uh, sitting on the other side of it. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have... 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee.
1: Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear, the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pelgrane Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get out on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why,
0: thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken.
1: Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes?
0: It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock
1: card? Oh the Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card.
0: The Nordic alien in the the corner of this here Elliptony hut is especially excited by this instance of the Elliptony hut because uh, it not only features Elliptony, but uh, has a bit of a, a Nordic feeling to it. So it's wearing a legit authentic, non-horned Icelandic helmet uh, to honor the question posed to us by Friedrich Gjarnason, a Patreon backer, who uh, hipped us to the uh, search by an Italian cryptographer and uh, engineer uh, for Templar treasure in Iceland. And first of all, uh, if you look at someone who is uh, engaged in archaeological quests, it's important to note uh, that they don't, Mess that up with any archaeological knowledge. You really, no, well, no, what you, can't you need to that. do in order to find Templar treasure, which itself is in no means a red flag as to the elliptonic as opposed to archaeological content, but you're looking for cryptography and uh, engineering as the, as the best skills uh, to get yourself some Templar treasure. So, what we're talking about is the quest of a man named Giancarlo Gianazza. And, uh Ken, uh, there's so many threads to, to hold on to in this uh, completely credible theory that there's probably, undoubtedly, a vault full of stuff that the Templars uh, looted from the Holy Land, and, of course, uh, they stuck it in Iceland. Uh Where do we want to begin to get our uh, uh, claws on it? You're the more experienced uh evaluator of things, Leptonic. Uh, where do we want to start?
1: I mean... First of all, we have to start by saying, and I mean nothing but love to our Italian listenership. This is an Italian guy making this up. And (laughs) when, well, you know.
0: It has a particular Italianate made-up nature?
1: It has an an Italianate made-up nature because an Italian elliptonist, and this should not be taken as a diss, but it is a, you know, it's a feature. They don't care if things are real. (laughs) A, a French elliptonist, a French elliptonist <laughs> depends on an existing lie, uh, or a forgery or something that they can sort of point to and say, look, this, this real thing was real. Um, and I have merely, uh, put a new thing on it. And an Anglophone elliptonist is, if anything, even lazier than a French one because they will, by and large, not even go to the trouble of making a forgery or even uh, uncovering a forgery. They will, uh, they will, by and large, just reprint other elliptonists and try and sort of reassemble them in combinatoria. Um, and, and so very, very rarely, in English language elliptony, do you get someone who literally just walks into the room and makes crap up? Now the Italians, because of their, you know, they're, they're the home of great art in the Western tradition, the home of great cooking in the Western tradition. If if something, if an ingredient is missing, you, by God, add it, and so. <laughs> Uh, but this, you can
0: only add it the way that your grandmother
1: did. Exa- well, ideally, yes, and that means, of course, going back to Dante, um, yes. Giancarlo Giannazza, <laughs> who is uh, described as a cryptographer and engineer, both of which, by the way, are giant elliptony red flags. If someone is described as an engineer, the, you know, you they are almost always insane when they are writing uh, on the humanities, <laughs> and good for them, you know. Right? I might not want to go across a bridge that Giancarlo Giannazza designed, but I don't know that.
0: I'm sure he's from the the great tradition of drinking engine which we're familiar uh, with in, in the neighborhood I live in uh, due to uh, U of T's engineering school. But uh, c-
1: continue on. Anyway, um, and so he begins as, as Dan Brown began with looking at uh, great masterpieces of art. And rather than Dan Brown merely rearranging other people's research, he has made things up. And so he finds, uh, beginning with Botticelli's Spring, which is something that people don't usually begin with. And he says... Uh, because of the characters are holding up numbers of fingers, you can get March fourteenth, and it is implying a um, uh, vernal equinox because of the the shapes in the in the art.
0: Well, th- th- there's only two possibilities if, if figures in a painting from the Renaissance are holding up fingers. Uh, one of them is. The one you just mentioned. And the only other one is that they're time travelers doing gang signals. And we exactly. know that's not true. Ergo, right.
1: Ergo Giancarlo's
0: right. Because uh Botticelli had a very strong no-gang policy.
1: Yes. Which was, you know, it was very tough to maintain in his days. Um, so because he then connects the the 314 or March 14th date to Dante, and I'm gonna just share something with my friends. If Giancarlo Giannazza had written a book, If he'd gone the simple extra step of writing a book that was translated into English, I grant that, that's on me, I would have read this book, or at least read enough of it (laughs) to know whether this is utter balderdash or just Dante balderdash that I don't know. But he then says that the date, March 14th, appears in Dante, it appears as a vernal equinox and that there is a planet that forges human souls connected with this equinox, which he Giancarlo decides is Saturn. And that is a little more uh French, but again, he's going back to Dante and Dante is, is really very unplumbed territory for elliptid. I, I, I uh, aside from possible Rosicrucianism, um, this is one of the, one of the early, one of the only Dante, uh, things that I'm, that I'm super familiar with. So right. I'm.
0: But, but, but let's not say that he leaves Da Vinci on the table. No, no, no. Uh, no. Because, because once, on the table in, in The Last Supper. Once he
1: demonstrates, once he demonstrates that Dante is talking about Saturn and that Saturn is conjunctive with the sun only in 1319 in Dante's Divine Comedy writing period. Therefore, that's what he's talking about. So there's
0: not a single leap of
1: logic here. None. It's all and hard having demonstrated that Botticelli has got secret codes from Dante, the natural question is: Can I find them in a piece of art more
0: people know? And the answer right. is,
1: of course. So he goes to the, the, the Last, Last Supper. Supper
0: because in the Last Supper, there's a piece of bread, and the bread is not the unleavened bread that would be period accurate. Yes. But just a a more attractive bread loaf that would say be you know what you would think of as a loaf of bread uh if you were a, a Renaissance Italian painter
1: right or if say you didn't know any Jews because it was illegal to uh, have Jews in Florence and certainly they weren't inviting um uh, Leonardo over for for Passover
0: right and there's <laughs> no way that that Da Vinci would just be oh I would sooner draw a loaf of bread because you know the the angles are better and people know what it is and it's recognizable no he only had a an inauthentic piece of bread Because that's the tip-off that you want to look at the Greek island of Catheria, Mount Cardu in France, and da-da-da-da, an area in the interior of Iceland. Now, uh, do we know why these famous painters are narking out this Templar vault?
1: This is the make-manifest-that-which-should-be-hidden business that the Masons love so much, is if you got a secret, first of all, you don't tell it. Second of all, you tell everyone, I've got a secret. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and if you're Da Vinci or Botticelli, the way yeah. you do it is put codes in your paintings. Um, the other thing that I do want to emphasize is that Janaza has also said that if you think that this Dante to Da Vinci thing is a stretch, just look at the Mona Lisa long enough and it's going to look like Dante to you. So there. So it's not just a stretch. But the other thing that connects Spring and The Last Supper is a specific curved line uh d- done by picking figures, not arbitrarily at all, <laughs> And drawing a line, <laughs> not arbitrarily along their clothing, hair, or arms, but you can make the same little uh, curve figure in both Spring and in The Last Supper, and that curve figure is the outline on a map of the Jokal Fall River. Now, let us move beyond the fact that maps in 1314, or even in 1514, are not Super good for showing, I don't know, the Tiber River, or the Po River, or the Arno River, or <laughs> rivers that they actually lived by, but the fact that it matches a geodetic map of Iceland, that I guess what that proves is that the Templars just had really good secret maps that they also didn't share uh, with people. Anyway...
0: Well, maybe that's what's... In the vault. You get there and it's just all these satellite quality maps.
1: Right. That, that's what's going to be there. It's just their um, uh, their their Google Earth subscription. Yeah. And, and again, I have to emphasize, it's not like, you know, a sort of a, a cool turn left at the breasts of Freya go above Thor's head type treasure map map. It's like someone takes a satellite photo of Iceland and draws a a uh, line along the Jokofal river and that gives you the line of these dudes and in um spring the cherub is pointing his arrow directly at a spot on the river which turns out to be uh something that uh Genaza calls the throne of Beatrice and which is another uh bit of um Dante uh, uh trivia as to where is Beatrice standing or sitting at various points in the story um Iceland is basically purgatory if you um follow this uh, passage, so I'm not sure that Gianaz is doing the Icelanders any favor. And then um, there is a natural amphitheater there in Iceland, uh, where there is a magic stone called, I believe, the nipple, but it also might be the fish-shaped stone. Again, without a book, I'm, I'm helpless here. And <laughs> if you go to Iceland and make things up, um Snorri Sturluson who becomes um law speaker in 1217 um is accompanied uh by uh soldiers by by warriors well, and that of is Of course
0: if you g- if this story obviously is going to have the only famous islander right in it. yes
1: Snorri Sturluson is accompanied by warriors at the point that he becomes law speaker now that much is true that i found in plenty of descriptions of Snorri sturluson's life that they were knights from the south all dressed and armed in the same fashion has not appeared in my admittedly cursory stur- Snorri-Sturluson-related research, but I would lay fairly good odds that it also does not appear in any piece of Snorri-Sturluson research that predates um, uh, the insights of Giancarlo Janazza. So Janaza's theory is that the Templars came to Iceland, possibly um, uh, bearing their treasures, to hide their treasures away under this rock, at this spot on the Fall River under the nipple and or fish-shaped rock, and that their muscle is what allowed Snorri Sturluson to become all things speaker. So I'm sure Snorri left tons more code in his own Eddas and, uh, his heims- and the Heimskringla to point yet more uh, cool stuff out about uh, Jesus and the Templars and God knows what all. And then uh, Dante, apparently, went to Iceland to find the chamber, and that's how he was able to describe it so well in right. the Purgatorio, is because when you read the Purgatorio, gosh darn if it doesn't remind you of Iceland. Right,
0: and and by apparently, we mean that Giannata asserts this. Exactly, history. asserts this with no evidence whatsoever,
1: um, unless he's made up some evidence, which again... I want to say, good for him. If people didn't make things up, the ecology would become sterile.
0: There'd certainly be no Elliptony hut. There would just be the the normal
1: hut. It would be the the, the hut of of Misprizian, the misprisioning hut, I guess. Um, And so, the other great triumph that Janaza has managed to do, or at least that people writing about Janaza have managed to do, is never mention the fact that the other guy who was looking for the Holy Grail in Iceland was Otto Ron, beloved SS Grail Hunter, the Indiana Jones of um, uh, the Grail. And Otto Ron apparently decided that the Grail was in Iceland based on the very real fact that Otto Ron wanted to go to Iceland. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I think Giannazza has been to Iceland a whole bunch of times, too. So, yeah. you know, his, history may be repeated. So. Exactly.
1: That it, it could just be that grail seekers want to go to Iceland because it's nice there. And uh, you need a, a little rest between uh, breaking. Now, Ron's book is more sort of an initiatory voyage in the form of a, a – not quite a memoir, but sort of a meditation. There's not like uh, – Ron is not following concrete clues. Ron is writing a very impressionistic Uh, work. So, um, there is not a big stretch of reduplicated research because Ron is barely doing any research at all. Uh, Ron does talk about, um, uh, Don Quixote, uh, but he does not so much say Cervantes is hiding the Holy Grail in Iceland. He just says the quester for the Grail must be like Don Quixote. So that, that said, Uh, Spanish or more, I'm
0: looking for the grail, might as well start somewhere. Might as well start somewhere. Why not
1: Iceland? And I guess the thesis being that if the grail is actually a Nordic myth, you should go to the place where Nordic myth is at its purest, and that is Iceland. And so, there's a great deal of proving the grail is a Nordic myth, then saying, and so I went to Iceland to look for it. So, we are obviously waiting for a Cervantes Code book to demonstrate that Cervantes, rather than being held prisoner by the Corsairs, was actually in Iceland, although since the Corsairs themselves rated as far as iceland cervantes could have gone to iceland and discovered the holy grail and then put clues in don quixote so that's free that's a sequel for the next person who wants to right. write it but uh do me a favor and write it in english not in spanish or, or italian i guess or yeah don't or write spanish. it just write it in english and whatever other language you'd like to i'm not saying don't write it in your own language just make sure i can read M- it
0: make sure it's translated. Yeah, right. Uh, with with suitably
1: small margins on the back, Right. Oh, I'm, the publisher will take care of that for you. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, now that we've established the uh, utter reliability of this uh, theory, I think we can then uh, move on and uh, undertake our own grail journey, except that in this case the grail is whatever segment lies past the arduous journey that is our next commercial. What happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well,
1: there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous.
0: Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X.
1: Logically related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln.
0: Ask for Askfageln by name, and don't forget that's F E N I X. And remember that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish.
1: Help keep this podcast breathing by joining such Patreon backers as Simon
0: Proctor, Diane Donaldson, Ethan Cordray, Garrett Fitzgerald, and Jeffrey Cars.
1: It's time once again to ask Kenan Robin. So let's ask Kenan Robin. Patreon backer Sean McAuliffe asks Kenan Robin, "How do you use your player's hometown as the basis for a Trail of Cthulhu campaign?" What would make it especially interesting or creepy? I believe that you may have recast Sean McAuliffe's question um so as to uh, thwart me in my attempt to read it, but I got it out, Robin. So how do we use our own hometown? Because one assumes you're playing in the same town as your players, although in this day of internets and whatnot, maybe that's not true. And how do you make your town, uh, not just Toronto or Chicago, but your town, TM, interesting and creepy? Uh, Robin, what's your what's your take on this?
0: Uh, well, I, I'm going to gazump you, Ken, and uh, do do the Ken Height method. Okay, and maybe you can guess with Robin Height what the Robin, uh, Robin Laws method would be. Uh, <laughs> As which Ken is Height, you, yeah, which <laughs> is that you research uh, the cool things in the history of your uh, uh, city, particularly things that happened in the 30s, and then add a mythos spin to them so uh, for example I would do some research and find out about the uh, Christy Pitts riots which is a, a big uh, ethnic slash race riot that occurred uh, in a uh, park within walking distance of my house uh, and so uh, find out what the uh, sinister uh, reality behind that was that uh, uh, ginned up the uh, ethnic tensions in, in Toronto the good to the point where uh, people were fighting each other with uh, with stakes and uh, uh, hammers and so forth. And uh, as always, when dealing with historical events, you don't want to let humanity off the hook, uh, but you can sneak in some creepy things. And so research the thirties in your city, look at what the events are, and then uh, ask yourself, well, what would uh, good old HP have done uh, with this as as a story kernel for uh, one of his short stories and go from there.
1: And I'm theorizing that the Robin methodology is to find an interesting person in the 1930s that you find already interesting and figure out a story that you can bring them into as a valued NPC as opposed to a GM sock puppet so that they can have the fun of interacting with uh in, say, Chicago in the 1930s were kind of, you know, spoiled for content, but let's say Al Capone and Elliot Ness and whatnot, and figure out a way to make those people's activities relevant to the story that you're pursuing. So rather than go and research a specific haunting or a specific mass murder or a specific uh gang activity that I might want to in Chicago, the Robin methodology would be to say, all right, I know that it, we're going to be meeting Al Capone, we're going to be meeting Elliot Ness. Therefore, there should be a prohibition story to this. So I'm going to make up a rum runner and I'm going to make up a problem that the rum runner might have maybe there's some sort of things growing in the um uh, in the in the barrels where he's keeping them under some building and the thing in the barrels is uh, getting into the the gangsters and making them all sort of um hopped up and 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 messed up and the rum runner comes to the players and says solve my problem or i'll murder your families and then they're like uh okay but as they're doing that uh Elliot Ness is is pressuring them and he's going to go in and smash up the barrels and um uh, maybe um uh, release these monsters or he's going to spoil the way that they can solve it uh Al Capone is pushing the guy to 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 get out of the business and give his business over to Capone. So you've got these great NPCs to meet in a human story that is coincidentally connected to the human history but not so much the psychogeography and the creepy hauntings and the rest of it that is the Ken Height method. Is that close enough to the Robin
0: method? Uh the method that could be a Robin method. It sounds clever, so I'll take credit for it. But the one I had in mind uh was starting with a landmark, a place in the current city that seems either creepy or the opposite of creepy uh, to the uh, players where they can imagine their characters and then adding a touch of horror to it. So uh, indeed to go with the psychogeography angle and, you know, what's a notable place that I'm going to relate to now in the last example, Christie Pitts park actually is a, a double header because it's, an, an event from history and it's a place that everybody can still picture and can imagine themselves being so start with location then go backwards from there and so uh from there uh the toronto example would be oh well there's a, a u of t campus obviously big chunks of that were uh, already present in the 30s and there's the uh legend of the two uh, uh builders uh I'm forgetting one of the names. Uh Resnikoff is the name I think of the killer in this story. But there's a a ghost story about so and so and Reznikov and how the one tried to kill the other with an axe and there's supposedly an axe mark on one of the beams. And uh, so therefore, one of the big pubs on campus, uh, the events is called Resnikoff's or was. And so you come up with a mythos story that is the real horrible thing that happened underlying that myth, and then that takes your your characters to. Uh, U of T as it was in the 30s. And, uh, you can go back and find archival images of, you know, landmarks of your city in the 30s. It's going to be much easier than just finding, oh, this vacant lot or whatever. Or the other thing to do is just to start off with find images of your city in the 30s and then that this building d- isn't there anymore. Uh, but that, uh, roof looks kind of creepy in there. That shadow is kind of interesting. What's going on there? And so, uh, because I think part of the whole appeal of, setting the uh, horror stories in a place that the players recognize and consider to be familiar is that that adds a layer of uh, reality and relatability that if you're not from New England and the adventure is set at Arkham, you're imagining basically like a horror movie set. But if it's at uh, the U of T campus, or uh, at the University of Chicago, or whatever the equivalent is for your group, they are then imagining themselves in a specific real place that they have actually been. So use that uh, sense of place and uh, focus either on uh, whatever you can get images of, whatever fits a uh, a mythic or horrific pattern, or uh, conversely something that just seems very sane and ordinary, uh, and then you can uh, add something to it. Or, you know, the Science Center uh, in Toronto is built much later than the 30s. Well, what was on the site of the Science Center at that time? And what horrible thing would you have to remediate by building a, a temple to science on it? And then there you go. There's your uh, uh, thing that sort of plays on that sense of historical irony because the uh, players know what's going to happen in the, in the future, but the characters don't.
1: Yeah. Um, what do you say about the familiarity? Breeding horror is a thousand percent true. I ran my, uh, first unknown armies game, uh, was set in Chicago and the players would come to me and say, I was just in this creepy alley up in Andersonville. There has to be something going on. And so we would look it up on on Google Earth or we would or we would talk about it or it was before Google Earth. We would just talk about it or I would go down there and I would say, Oh yeah, there's definitely something going on and here's what's going on. And sort of by having a the ability to add that numinous or terrifying truth to an area that they just walk past all the time, that makes it a more exciting, more deeply felt uh experience than just saying like you say arkham or you know london if you're not from london i mean we all have sort of an image of london in our heads just from movies and tv and maybe books but we don't if you're not if you don't live there you haven't been there a lot you don't really have that sort of walk the street sense of it that you do of your own hometown and so the ability to get that uh familiarity and the unnaturalness on top of each other is great and uh that is why even a trail of Cthulhu game is going to you. You, you want to lean into that historical irony because you don't have the contemporary um uh, multi uh, variants that you get when it's a contemporary thing. I mean, the, the Unknown Armies game was set in the literally the present day. It was I ran it in 1999. The goal was for the the big conspiracy was going to end New Year's Day 2000, and the player characters were involved in it. And so it was very very up to the minute. And so we could look in the headlines and say what happened in the city today that what's the magical reason that that happened? Um, It can't just be that the mayor is corrupt or the aldermen are idiots. I mean, there's more to it than that. And you know, who made this happen? And you can ask questions like that. You can do that um, with, with any sort of game. And I recommend looking into the, the place where you live, because unless you live in a virtual fly spec, something has happened in your, in your town or in your city. That is weird because, People are weird, and they live there. Um, there is a there is a great book um, uh, by um, uh, Corliss, the Geo Bibliography of Anomalies, that only goes up to about 1980, but has every UFO, lake monster, ghost sighting that he was able to find for pretty much every location north of the Rio Grande. Now we have Google, so you can type the name of your city and the word UFO, or the word vampire, or the word ghost, or the word murder, or the word riot, or whatever you're looking for into the search and you'll find tons of stuff that you didn't know about your own city uh, because no one can, can know all that. Uh, There's plenty of, of cities that have little books that are like true crimes or uh, uh, haunted Chicago. Uh, there's a, a million haunted Chicago books, but if you live in, you know, Boise, Idaho, I guarantee you go down to the uh, Boise uh, bookstores and they're going to have haunted Boise somewhere, or ghost tales of, uh, of Idaho, or Sasquatches of Boise, or UFOs of Boise, or something is going to be down in there because local cranks is an unkind word. Local alternative <laughs> historians, lo- local elliptonists will uh, excitedly tell their local elliptonist story because it's because they, this exact reason is because it's connected to them. Into their lived experience in a way that just writing about Loch Ness is not necessarily. And so uh, you'll be able to find those resources, they exist for, like I say, virtually anywhere that is not a fly spec. And if you're in a fly spec town, then, you know, maybe start looking at treatments of, of uh fictional small towns and say, what in my town feels like Dunwich? What in my town feels like Twin Peaks? What in my town feels like something creepy and isolated and weird? And who is the uh rich family in town? And could they be deep ones or could they be sand dwellers or whatever? And um uh, uh if you're the rich family in town, then, you know, maybe you know even better than I, whether or not your sand dwellers,
0: right? And you may just find a, a regular book by an amateur historian, uh, but that. But if the, the smaller the place, the more that will just be focused in on the level of individual people and families in the past, and that's the sort of very specific detail that, that you can then use to build out. It's like, well, you know, what if this person who is the the local reeve or alderman of this town. Uh, who this particular hiking trail is named after, well, what if they were cultists? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then you know, it's easy enough to add Cthulhu to anything, uh, And uh, but finding that initial layer of documentary uh, realism is going to allow you to uh, layer in the detail that uh, will make the uh, creepy stuff seem like it's happening in the context of reality.
1: And also, the need to color within the historical lines, I think, creates better horror and better mystery because you're constrained by something. It's like sonnet form constrains a poet. So you produce better poetry. Similarly saying, all right, if this alderman is a cultist, I, and he dies in 1960, I have to sort of make sure that he stays alive. I have to sort of figure out, you know, all the actual patterns of his life in such a way that they truly reflect his cultism. And, you know, you can look at uh, Tim Powers's On Stranger Tides, which does that for Blackbeard, or *Declare*, which does that for Kim Philby, as an example of how to do that for your alderman, and to sort of uh, put the secret history of that alderman into your game.
0: Right. Or you can just, you can do all of that research, but you can also, here's a picture of the alderman from that period, and you can invent a uh, story for him, and uh, but even just the image of him will... Uh, create a sense of documentary reality because. Uh, Especially
1: if there's, like you say, a, a hiking trail or a street or something named after him.
0: Yeah. Uh, that just even a couple of little things is enough to build on. You don't have to go and do. You can have that rewarding Ken like experience of uh, finding all of the little uh, refractions of history, or you can just find a couple of details that will strike yes. your players as real. And then, uh, and then build on them, which is the, which is the real Robin Laws version. Yes. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> s- since we've now looped back to the uh, initial uh, thing I said at the top of this segment, that means this segment is sadly over. So it's time to go down the cultist hiking trail to see what segment lurks on the other side.
1: Good old Alderman Marsh.
0: The skies are dim always since the Maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John
1: Scott Tynes' Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of punch- the
0: Maker Killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets.
1: Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from...
0: Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. It's time once more to wind our way up the Creaky Cod web Stairs where we wave up at the portrait of Adam Gulbatsky. She's still glowering at us after all these episodes. And head on in to the uh, figure who's sitting in the Edwardian parlor in his smoking jacket. And uh, he's the consulting occultist, of course. And this time, Patreon backer Raphael Pabst Wants to know about uh, William Blake. Uh, we were given the choice of whether to do Blake in a book hut and a con- or the consulting occultist, and I went for the uh, ever more popular consulting occultist uh, side of that equation. Uh, so <laughs> while we, uh, we we can talk about uh, uh, his uh, work as well as his career, but I guess we're going to be focusing on his uh, life as a visionary. So of course he was the poet and uh, illustrator. Uh, who, uh, sort of thrived, uh, flourished around the, uh, end of the 18th century. I, I don't think he ever of- thrived. Well, yes, yeah, <laughs> he did not personally thrive, but his work, yes. the work that we remember, uh, he created, uh, in the 1790s and in the first decades of the 1800s. Uh, our pal Northrop Fry is a huge, or was a huge supporter of, uh, Blake. Blakeian and, uh, scholar. To, yes. Uh, to get him, uh, Uh, installed into the uh, canon uh, for real. Uh, At the time, his poetic contemporaries thought, well, his work has a certain power, but also he's a nut. Yeah, (laughs) and in fairness to his contemporaries, they were not wrong. (laughs) They were not wrong, Uh, but the the nut part has sort of faded away and the, the great poet uh, has, uh, has become, uh, greater, uh, in people's imagination. So. And also,
1: just to, uh, you know, add a moment, his political radicalism is far more palatable to us than it was to anyone except his fellow radicals in 1800. Yes. When you're going around saying that uh, the laws of, of kings and man are, are foul, uh, that's a harder sell
0: in 1790 yes. than it is now, I think. All, all religions are equal. <laughs> is something lots of people want to embrace now, but, uh, uh, then you would throw a rock at someone who said that or several rocks. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Blake's major works are the uh, songs of innocence and experience, uh, 1794, the marriage of heaven and hell. And some of them are just poetry, uh, laid out in type, but th- the majority of them and those ones in particular are what were then called illuminated manuscripts, but now almost look like graphic novels mm-hmm. uh so in addition to being a visionary who saw angels from uh, the age of 4 to the uh, end of his life in 1827 uh he was a precursor to uh the, the comic book form so let's i guess talk about uh his uh life as a a visionary uh he saw visions his whole life and they were mostly visions of angels.
1: Yeah. Um, they were angels or, uh, higher spirits of some kind. Um, at one point he did see the ghost of Milton, which entered into his toe and, uh, gave him a poetic power. Uh, so it's not just angels, uh, or, or visions of, uh, even greater things than angels than sort of, uh, uh demiurgic and godlike figures. Uh, there's almost a polytheistic quality to Blake's work because he has this, different mythology that Blake actually went back and changed a bunch of different times um but he has entities like Urizen, the great rational creator of the world, who is modeled variously on the Old Testament God or on Isaac Newton. There is um, Orc, the great rebel and destroyer, who takes different shapes, depending on which revolution Blake is excited about at the time.
0: Right. And he embodies America uh, at one
1: point. He embodies America. He embodies Albion, uh, the, the island of Britain. He casts London both as his heavenly city, uh, Galganuza, and also as a gateway into, into hell. He has he, uh, has various places and entities that are sort of both, uh, Beulah and Ahania, uh, places like that. Um, getting a handle on Blake's imagery is something that I don't want to jump right out and say even Blake figured out how to do. And I certainly have yet to do it. I've run a bunch of games in which I sneak Blakeian imagery in. And every time I think I've got it, I'm reading Blake in order to, or Blake commentary to get a handle on what I'm doing, and I realize, oh, that was a remarkably naive and childish vision of Blake. I I'll do better next time. And that's happened to me three times, and I'm beginning to think Blake is one of those uh poets that there's 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 no stopping. Uh but I do recommend uh S. Foster Damon's A Blake Dictionary, The Ideas and Symbols of William Blake, which will give you a, a jumping off point with which to sort of um uh examine all of these various symbols and gods and entities. And Damon in in good encyclopedist fashion is attempting to at least make some sense or at least some order out of Blake's riot of symbols, because he was, as I think we've hinted a mystic, he was a visionary. He would have these visions and then he would put them down in engravings and in poetry to the best of his ability. And so he saw himself, I imagine as akin to sort of the biblical prophets who would have these visions like Isaiah and then come down and say, or Ezekiel and have these visions, then say, well, I've got to write down what God just told me. Blake, I think is saying, yes, it's God, but it's also Milton and it's the spirit of creation. It's this, true spirit of creation, Tharmion, not stupid rational creation. He was not fond of Urizen, the, the rational creator. He thought that people being rational is why uh, Blake didn't make a lot of money <laughs> and why people didn't let him sunbathe naked in his garden and all kinds of other things that he wanted to do. And and, and so he has these sort of mystical giants that predate the world, so it's sort of a Titanomachy uh, feeling to it. So you can have, uh, there's a, a Blake tarot deck that's out there that's really sweet. Um, it's not as good it could be, but it's a better Blake tarot deck than anyone else is going to make. So I urge you to run out and and, and nab it if you can. Um, and it's got all of the imagery of Blake sort of cast in the sort of tarotic uh, magic, which will give you a handle on it if you don't necessarily want to try and master Blake. If you've got a, an idea of what the tarot is, you can draft Blake in through that pattern.
0: Right. So the, the key is basically that he's making this big syncretic mythology Uh, from uh, not only uh, the act of illustrating and writing these poems, but from the visions that are inspiring them, and so that's constantly up for revision as you're having a new uh, vision. Uh, There's a reason those have the same uh, syllables in them, mostly. And so uh, he is fusing uh, uh, Christianity and his own sort of version of Greek mythology, and as you suggest, uh, the occasional inspirational historical figure like uh, Milton, and then uh, allegorical figures who then i think seem to take on more of a, a reality for him and as you suggest he never uh he's not derlething himself he's no. not going back <laughs> to his old visions and going okay well here's how i gotta explain the superstructure of how all of these uh characters in my continuity relate to each other it's like he's having new uh visions and new insights and, and going on and exploring those and of course creating an entire industry for blake scholars to uh, chase down for uh, for the rest of time. And, uh, you know, unlike, uh, y- you know, y- you can't, uh, say that about Wordsworth.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, Wordsworth is, is, um, uh, is, is a great poet, but his imagery is, is very conventional. You know, it's, it's, uh, flowers and it's water mills and it's pretty standard.
0: Right. And the, uh, illustrations themselves have this, uh, great power to them, which is probably why I think more people now n- uh, have seen possibly without recognizing, the, uh, his visual art, uh, without necessarily knowing the, uh, poetry. And it's, uh, got this sort of strange power to it. It's, uh, uh, kind of mannerist in style. And, uh, again, has a s uh, many of the figures have a sort of a hyper musculature that, uh, we will see again when, uh, Jack Kirby appears on the scene. And so there's, uh, something very, uh, kind of, uh, constricted and distorted about his figures, but nonetheless, uh, they have, Uh, this real power of sort of an authentic vision. And there are other, you know, there is a school the mannerists who follow that style as well, but there's stuff that's very, very distinctively Blake's. And nobody else drew like him just as nobody else wrote like him.
1: And of course, being a radical in the 1790s, he was buddies with a lot of other radicals. So he illustrated a book by Mary Wollstonecraft He had friends all over the the, the sort of radical scene and what nascent magical scene there were. So astrologers and other people who were considered weirdos uh, by society would hang out with William Blake because he also was considered a weirdo. And as long as they were an artistic weirdo, Blake didn't judge because he knew that, you know. Uh, the Orthodox religion was at best half right. And so who knew maybe there was magic. He's got bigger fish to fry. Blake is not a magician. Like I say, he's a mystic. He's about direct sensation of the, uh, supernatural, the, the, the paranatural, the, the divine, uh in a way that um uh, your your uh, Alistair Crowley's aren't Blake's magic is the creation of these of these poems and these as as you say incredibly powerful uh pieces of art.
0: Right. And so uh if you're using his cosmology for a game either a game set in his period or in the contemporary world uh you could uh start by building it around the conflict between uh Urizen and Orc the uh, the battle between the uh rational uh controlling super leader and the, uh, force of, uh, uh, rebellion and freedom. And, uh, you could even, you know, I think there's probably enough figures, you know, if, especially if you count Milton as one of them, where you could do 13th age style icon. Oh yeah. You could do it. Uh, you could do them. a
1: Blakey icon. I don't even think you need to add Milton, although you could, but, um, I, I ran into very few shortages of, of Blakean giants in the GURPS cabal game or in the, uh, unknown armies game that had some Blake in it.
0: Um, so you could, uh, define, uh, the characters in your game uh, by, you know, which of these uh Blakeian mythological figures that they are attuned to. And uh, you could give them their uh, various uh, mystical powers or just uh, bonuses that, uh, for the things that they're doing that appear uh, rational and mundane, but can then be explained. And of course, at least one person in the group has to be the visionary who can actually see all these figures in motion. Um, so there's an incredibly uh, rich, uh, corpus of uh magical figures to draw on there's the great illustrations that you could uh, pick and certainly Blake has been uh used a lot in uh pop culture i guess most famously in uh, red dragon the uh Thomas Harris novel t- Thomas Harris uh, novel with uh, Hannibal Lecter in it and uh so that's uh, uh the uh serial killer in that is attempting to become a, a Blakean uh, dragon uh by By eating spleens. Yes. uh, To to, to return to a previous theme. But I I think because uh, Blake is uh, hard to penetrate, uh, he has his own uh, world that requires a bunch of mapping. There's actually probably surprisingly few other similar pop culture references.
1: I mean, uh, apparently Philip Pullman thought uh, his dark materials was his tribute to Blake, if you will. Um, So maybe if you're, and I got, certainly in the early bits of it, I sort of got a, a sort of a Blakeian imagination uh there. Um, and then there's lots of uh, Blake's poetry has been set to music, obviously. Uh, Jerusalem, being the classic example, the unofficial national anthem of Great Britain is a Blake poem, which is something that Blake would never have predicted. <laughs> and <laughs> it was written... Uh, this is the part that Blake would have predicted, because Blake, while being a mystic, also understood that people were horrible. It was written, to raise money for a war. <laughs> I <laughs> The, the, the song was uh, it was written for the for the war bonds movement in World War One. And so it was a, a very, very it was an anthem of, of what was called the Right Club for a while. Uh, the, the, a more anti blakian movement you cannot imagine than the one that cr- uh, created the song Jerusalem. But now because of the innate radicalism of it, I think that sort of uh, the British uh, radical uh, movement has embraced it and and held it to them. There's a great Billy Bragg recording of Jerusalem that's just will make the hair stand up on your on your on your everywhere. Um, uh, and so I urge people to hunt that one down. The other, I guess, big William Blake mention, although it's not really a straight up Blake thing, is that, uh, the Johnny Depp character is named William Blake in Jim Jarmusch's insane afterlife Bardo Western dead man. Um, uh, and whether or not he's the real William Blake is sort of irrelevant to the story, but it's also kind of about having a vision and lots of other sort of allusions to the poetry pop up in it. So there's sort of a, a strong, Blakeness to it there, right?
0: right, uh, and uh, finally, uh, for a little bit of extra elliptony, the exact location of his grave uh fell into question for a while. yay, the Blake <laughs> society uh, uh, says that they found him again, uh, and uh, they're uh, going to put a permanent memorial at the site, but you know, just between you and me, that that's what I would say if I had a memorial I wanted to put up. I'd say that I knew where it was going to go. Yeah, if,
1: if you were the William Blake Society, you would say, uh, we, we would rather have a place people can go and maybe drop a couple of dimes on the society uh, than just sort of say, well, his grave is in all of our hearts, which is, again, the Blakeian answer. Um, but it does mean that if you're looking to... Um, uh, uh, dig him up and, and use him as a resurrected, uh, dude in a, a Charles Dexter Ward type story or, or find out if his dust has gotten into anybody else the way that Milton's dust got into him. Uh, Blake is, is wherever you might want to look for him, I guess.
0: Right. Well, specifically, he's somewhere in the, uh, in Bunhill Fields, uh, in Islington and London in the Dissenters burial ground. Right. With John
1: Bunyan and, uh, uh I think John Wesley's there. There's a lot of really, uh, that's an A list burial ground to, to go to.
0: Right. So, If you don't get him, and, you know, you you, uh, reassemble somebody, it might be somebody else just as interesting. Just as cool. uh, Although,
1: imagine wanting William Blake and getting John Bunyan. (laughs) (laughs) I I think both you and John Bunyan would be annoyed. Yeah, I'm sure John Bunyan would be annoyed. Um, And then you're like, well, I I guess I've got a mystical vision of Christianity, but I was, oh, well, whatever. It's fine. It's Denver Broncos.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, on that note, uh, once we've uh, w- once we're recommending grave robbing, I think it's time for us to get the heck out of here. Uh, speaking of l- earlier legal liability, uh, but we'll be back next week uh, to get in all sorts of other uh, trouble as well. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors... Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagel. Arc Dream.
1: Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Search for Templar
0: Gold alongside such patrons as... Jean-Francois Parady, Joshua Brumley Michael Bowman Morgan Ellis and Brian Thomas Snag Ken and Robin Apparel
1: and other Air Udite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash
0: Ken Robin On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.